Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Meet the next generation of podcast stars with Sirius XM's Listen Next program, presented by State Farm. As part of their mission to help voices be heard, State Farm teamed up with Sirius XM to uplift diverse and emerging creators. Tune in to Stars and Stars with Isa as host Isa Nakazawa dives into birth charts of her celeb guests. This is just the start of a new wave of podcasting. Visit statefarm.com to find out how we can help prepare for your future. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They were beautiful. They were fashionable. They were influential. And out of sheer necessity, most of them were skilled, shrewd, entrepreneurial businesswomen who took what they had and created lives of extraordinary wealth and power at a time when roles of more, shall we say, proper women were extremely limited. They were painted by the greatest artists from Caravaggio in the Renaissance to Manet and Degas in the Belle Epoque. Writers from Emile Zola to Marcel Proust captured their mystery, allure, and intrigue. And composer Giuseppe Verdi wrote one of his most famous and enduring operas based on one of them. They were the great courtesans of 19th century Paris, and they've all now disappeared. But just what really was a courtesan, and just who were they? The most famous had beauty and style that seduced not only men, but the press, and were emulated by all levels of society. But they often had a trail of scandal and hidden sadness trailing behind their satin gowns and concealed behind their peacock feather fans. Courtesans were among society's accepted businesswomen, so to speak. And just to be clear here, we are really talking, in one way or another, about the world's oldest profession. But the courtesans were much more than rough ladies of the streets. In fact, they were not that at all. Although for some, it was the squalor and the danger of the sidewalks and alleys from which they rose to their towering notoriety and fame. Nor were they merely mistresses or kept women. The benefactors, patrons, lovers, or protectors, however one chooses to call their clients, had a range of relationships with them, some of which lasted for years. But make no mistake, it was always she, the courtesan, who was in control. In fact, along with their overt sexual freedom, it was their ability to wield power and control that contributed to their allure. Courtesans existed for centuries. They were a fixture of the social structure of Renaissance Venice, for example, but in today's show, we will delve into the world of Parisian society in the 19th century leading up to the Belle Epoque to get a clearer picture of just what and who they really were. A courtesan presented herself as an object of desire, of beauty, even of refinement and culture, but for many, it was a part, a character, a role, if you will. There was much in their stories that they often left far behind, never to share with a lover or perhaps anyone at all. The courtesan created an illusion of an ideal beauty, 
Their image was held tightly in their control, and the fantasy and allure of sensual adventure was released at their discretion to their often obsessed lovers. But wasn't it that illusion and expectation, after all, that one paid for? Hello, I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, where we dip into aspects of America's Gilded Age, France's Belle Epoque, and England's late Victorian and Edwardian eras to see just what lay beneath all the glitter and the gold. In 2010, a discovery was made that shocked and fascinated historians and art critics around the world. Tucked away on the second floor of an elegant 19th century residence block in Paris was an apartment that had seemingly not been touched in over 70 years. The death of its owner, a 91-year-old French woman named Solange Beaugeron, and the finalization of her estate prompted the unsealing of the apartment by her executors. To everyone's shock, the rooms were exactly as they had been left so many, many years before. It appeared undisturbed and unseen for decades. Solange had last lived in the apartment in the 1940s, but had hastily fled to the south of France, fearing Nazi occupation during World War II. Astonishingly, she continued to pay the rent on the apartment for the rest of her life, but she herself never, it seems, returned. The apartment, whose images astonished the world press, as well as historians and curators, had belonged to Solange's grandmother, an elegant, glamorous woman who had lived there in the 1880s and 1890s and into the 20th century. And it was still filled with her grandmother's things, almost as if she had never left or just gone out for an evening at the opera. Her delicately carved dressing table still arrayed with bottles of perfume. Ornate belle époque furniture and mirrors still decorating the salon with its peeling filigreed wallpaper. And propped on a chair, perhaps the most important find of all, a dramatic painted portrait of the apartment's original occupant herself, Solange's grandmother, Marthe de Florian. Born in 1864 and who died in the apartment in 1939. Marthe de Florian was a courtesan. This incredible find opened a window into the intimate and intact life of a courtesan in an era long, long gone. The portrait, when evaluated, was found to have been painted by the early 20th century portraitist Giovanni Baldini, who it seems had been one of de Florian's lovers. Intimate letters between Baldini and de Florian were found in the apartment tucked away, still tied with a faded ribbon. The discovery was so extraordinary because today the world of the courtesans is indeed far away and has disappeared with time and social change. I want to take you on a journey back to the world of the courtesan said to be at its height in the mid to late 19th century world of Paris to get a better sense of who they were, where they came from, what they did, and what they left. Their flashy public images often concealed much below the surface, including sadness and pain. 
This episode will focus on three particular women, all duly famous, and whose images and reports of the latest sightings of them were the talk of Paris social circles from tea salons to boxes at the opera to the bar at the exclusive gentleman's retreat, the Jockey Club. Before we dive into their stories, it's important to discuss a few generalities of their world. The French language can be very precise, and indeed, the most minute shadings of meaning often have a specific word or phrase to perfectly capture it. The world of the courtesan was described as the demi-monde, literally translated as a half-world. Theirs was not the world of the street prostitute, but despite their jewels and gowns, their world was not the world of the ladies of the highest society either. They occupied their own very specific and defined place between the two. Furthermore, there were a number of defined categories to describe women who chose to sell their favors in varying degrees and ways. The practice of selling one's favors was accepted and, in fact, legal and highly regulated in Paris of the 19th century. At its lowest levels, those who practiced had to register with authorities and were monitored by the city with health checks and care if any disease appeared. Moving up the ladder was the grisette, the name originating from the gray color of the dresses that they usually wore. Grisettes were typically young working girls, most often dressmakers or milliners' apprentices or assistants, who entertained lovers along with their day jobs. A number of courtesans began their careers as grisettes, as we shall see. Next was the lorette. A lorette was much flashier than the grisette and could easily be an actress or dancer or other performer. In her study of courtesans, author Virginia Rounding quotes from Henri Murger, a novelist of 1830s Paris, as he describes the Lorette. An impertinent hybrid, a mediocre beauty, half flesh, half unguent, whose boudoir is a counter where she slices pieces from her heart as though they were roast beef. We can surmise that the Lorette might have been a bit less discriminating in the choosing of her paramours. Countless other terms were used as one moved up the ladder. There were terms such as dégraffe, the unbuttoned, cocotte, and at the top were the courtesans, most often called the grande horizontale. Regardless of where she came from, a true courtesan had to be educated in some form, be able to speak and hold her own in a variety of subjects, ideally speak one or more languages, perhaps be an accomplished horsewoman, as we will see, and next to any physical attributes deemed worthy of the price, she had to be witty and offer great charm. Often a courtesan was taken into training by an older woman who had retired from the profession, as it were. Courtesans who trained younger ones in deportment and social nuance may well have used that practice to continue some form of earning as their own days as a grande horizontale dwindled. It was also essential a courtesan be noticed, and herein lies one of the differences between the mistress or kept woman. The courtesan was meant to be visible out in public, and depending on her status in the social galaxy, men wanted others to see that he was able to support a relationship with a particular courtesan. She was a status symbol, burning through money as visibly as possible, 
often on clothing and accessories, was almost a requirement of the position of the courtesan. Gambling spots, along with the opera house and the theater, were another venue where courtesans were expected to appear and to gamble themselves. A number of courtesans developed damaging gambling addictions, which no amount of money, it seems, shoveled out by their patrons could diminish. Particularly in the years of the Belle Epoque, courtesans were expected to display outrageous and dramatic behavior, whether in public or in private. One story has been told of a famous courtesan who demanded her lover arrive for their encounter with 20 banknotes of a thousand francs each, which were to be burned systematically during their amorous encounter. The gentleman a banker, was apparently so distressed at the burning of the money that he was unable to follow through on his intended actions and had to leave in despair. He furthermore reportedly claimed to a friend that the bills were actually counterfeit. But still. The life of the courtesan was not an easy one despite what dusky existing photographs and our imaginations may portray. Many of these women had to try as best they could to overcome physical and emotional abuse in its many forms in their earlier lives, and furthermore, there were no guarantees that fame and fortune would last, or for just how long. A courtesan's jewels, it has been written, were often thought to be one's insurance policy should fortunes change. There were cases where a courtesan had a child— and often, if female, she too could grow up to be trained in the profession and help provide financial security for her mother in declining years. Despite the frivolity and opulence, there could be a very dark side not far below the surface. The courtesan controlled how much she gave and to whom, but there was one rule that must never be broken with those who sought her charms. She must never actually fall in love. The three women whose stories I will share with you today are three of the most famous courtesans of their time. The first, Marie Duplessis, who enjoyed her fame in the 1840s, is the one with the most influence that we can still feel today. The second, Cora Pearl, was an English beauty who came to Paris mid-century and enjoyed her reign during the extravagant years of the Second Empire in the world of Emperor Napoleon III and his fashion icon wife, the Empress Eugenie. The third brings us full on into the years of the Belle Epoque with Liane de Pougy, who, as a dancer and performer with the Folie Bergère, worked too as a courtesan, yet who chose, in the end, a life of religious devotion. All three were dramatically different given their times, but in so many ways, so much the same. The first of our courtesans, it has been suggested, is the one whose shadow is perhaps the longest and whom we still can meet today. The character of Marguerite Gautier in Alexandre Dumas-Fils' novel and play, The Lady of the Camellias, the soprano heroine of Verdi's opera La Traviata, and the character of Camille, as famously portrayed by Greta Garbo in MGM's 1936 film, are all portrayals of her. Her real name was Alphonsine Plessis, but she came to be known as Marie Duplessis, changing her name as most courtesans did and adding the du to signify a non-existent but implied noble connection. 
Marie Duplessis became the most famous courtesan in the Parisian world of the 1840s during the days of the last royalist rule in France. The reason she remains with us today is due to the work of novelist Alexandre Dumas-Fils. His fictionalized account of her life, The Lady of the Camellias, was published a year after she died and captured the literary public with its details and unique insight. Dumas, after all, knew what he was talking about in portraying the life of this courtesan in such vivid and heartbreaking detail. He had been one of her last lovers. Alphonsine Plessis was born near Norant in Normandy in 1824. As so often with the lives of the grandest of the courtesans, her early life was difficult and likely contained some level of abuse. Her father was the son of a priest and a prostitute who reportedly was abusive to Alphonsine's mother, who left when her daughter was six years old. As an adolescent, Alphonsine relocated to Paris with her father in hopes of finding work, which she did as a dressmaker's assistant, eventually living with relatives. Some of the earliest observations on her life center on her love of food, perhaps due to the very lack of it in her life growing up. She is reported to have been seen half-hidden, hungrily eating the fried potatoes or apples from street vendors near the Pont Neuf as Paris's elegant society rushed by around her. It's an ironic image because in the years to come, as one of Paris's most desirable courtesans, she regularly hosted a salon in her apartment with great dinners with popular writers and artists all around tables of abundant food. One day, a sudden rainstorm prevented Alphonsine and two of her friends from boarding an omnibus for a trip out to the country for the day. A nearby shopkeeper offered some shelter and some wine and an invitation to accompany him to the country the following weekend. It seemed clear that this gentleman was keenly interested in Alphonsine as a possible new and young mistress. She complied and soon was installed in an apartment by herself, paid for by his resources. She had left her relatives in Paris and work in a dressmaking shop behind. With her newfound ample enough financial resources, Alphonsine began to spend, and at a level that her benefactor named Monsieur Noyer was unprepared to support, and he left. The 21-year-old son of the Duc de Guiche was the first contact Alphonsine had of a life supported by an aristocrat who reveled in her beauty. The liaison with the Duke's son was a significant one for her, since it went beyond the mere physical. Agnor de Guiche was genuinely interested in helping Alphonsine improve her education and paid for teachers and tutors in writing, reading, and a level of conversation that could compete with his. Alphonsine discovered a voracious and passionate love of reading and books— When she died, her personal library was found to contain over 200 volumes, a significant amount for a personal collection at the time. Her education and social skills funded by de Guiche included deportment, in addition to the art of conversation. Alphonsine was a shrewd and quick study. To mark her transformation, she left her old identity as Alphonsine Plessis from the Norman countryside behind, and she became Marie Duplessis. 
Beginning to circulate in aristocratic circles, she took up with a young Viscount, perhaps while still spending time with de Guiche. None of these liaisons was necessarily exclusive on either side. The relationship with the Viscount de Merille resulted in her beginning to travel to the great spa and gambling centers, Germany's Baden-Baden being the most well-known in the mid-19th century, but her first trip took her to Belgium near Liège. Spa resorts were also notorious centers of gambling and vice, and Marie found a great attraction that lasted throughout her lifetime at testing her skill at games of chance. The relationship further resulted in Marie giving birth to a child who was placed in the care of a nurse, but later died. Marie's demeanor has been written that it was developing into a cool, slightly mysterious presence when she was in public that caused great allure. Men wanted this lovely young woman with a charming and elusive smile, but it's been reported that she could be quite lively in the seclusion of her own salon. One of the most important places a courtesan could be seen was at the opera. A 19th century opera house was constructed to make the patrons in the box seats and mezzanine seats blatantly visible to all of the others attending. The downside of this, of course, was that a number of those seats had a bad view of the stage. But the real drama wasn't happening on stage anyway. Opera houses could also be used as a venue for balls and other grand entertainment, and indeed it was at a masked ball at the Paris Opera one night in the early 1840s that Count Édouard du Périgueux first saw Marie du Plessis. Marie was described, and as we can see from the portraits that were painted of her, she was described as having luxurious dark hair which fell about her face in long, thick rolls typical of the period that framed a long, thin, oval face with white, ivory skin. She was fairly tall but small-boned, not voluptuous, but with long, slender hands and feet. Most notably, and what has become legendary, was her love of wearing fresh camellia flowers pinned delicately to the silk and satin of her gowns. On most occasions, she chose a white camellia, except for the few days a month on which she wore red. Perigot was obsessed with Marie, even becoming estranged from his family to devote himself to her. To prove his ardor, he bought her a house outside the city in the countryside where they could escape together for days at a time in the fresh air. The image is ironic because it is perfectly captured in Act 2 of Giuseppe Verdi's operatic retelling of her story, based on the Dumas novel and play. When they were in the city, Perigot took her to the great grand new restaurants lining the Boulevard des Italiennes, where aristocrats and courtesans came to be seen. Sitting in the mirrored, gold-accented grand dining room of the Maison Dorée, Marie could have her choice of exquisitely prepared dishes served with impeccable style, accompanied by her beloved champagne. It had all happened so fast, and was such a change from her voracious consumption of fried potatoes hurriedly consumed on the Pont Neuf. Perigot, who was financially well-off, but whose fortunes couldn't in the end keep pace with Marie's growing expenses— finally ended their relationship for a time. Marie returned to her daily routine of recruiting new benefactors and spending her days preparing to go out and be seen in the evenings around Paris. Her typical day, as it has been described, was 
as it was for many courtesans, to arise around 11 o'clock in the morning, have a light breakfast, perhaps some coffee and rolls, then she devoted herself to a bit of time at the piano or to reading. Then began the long process of deciding how she would adorn herself for engagements that evening, which dress, which accessories, which jewels, trying many combinations until she was pleased with the effect that she wanted to create. She would finally emerge in afternoon dress, order the carriage, and go for a drive in the Bois de Boulogne. Ostensibly for some fresh air, but in reality to be seen by potential suitors, other courtesans, and the society lookers who were fascinated by them. Returning home, she would receive visitors, not of the professional sort, but perhaps her personal friends until it was time to dress for the evening at the opera, at a dinner, or a ball. One night in 1844, while attending the theater, a young man saw her when she was in the company of the son of a famous actress. Twenty-year-old Alexandre Dumas saw and fell in love with the twenty-year-old Marie. But lacking the resources, he was the son of a writer after all. He could only offer himself as an amant du coeur, a lover, but with limited access and a restriction on the time that they spent together. Unable to withstand the emotional toll their relationship, such as it was, had on him, it's reported that Dumas broke it off with a note quoted in Virginia Rounding's study of the Grande Horizontale. Dear Marie, I am neither rich enough to love you as I would like, nor poor enough to be loved as you would like. So let us both forget, you a name that must mean hardly anything to you, me, a happiness which has become impossible to bear. But of course, Alexandre Dumas did not forget. He went on to immortalize Marie in literature, which allowed others in the worlds of opera and film to know her today. In the mid-1840s, she was one of the most recognized silhouettes in the grand restaurants of the Boulevard des Italiennes, where France's great culinary culture was being refined. At one night... A gentleman of advanced years in his 80s chose to ask for her affections and indeed set her up in her final and most elegant apartment on the fashionable Boulevard de la Madeleine in the heart of social Paris. She entertained in the intimate dining room and continued to be seen at the opera, tickets always being automatically sent to her by the theater. She loved exhibitions and concerts, and on the night of April 16, 1845, Marie attended a concert by the young, 34-year-old Hungarian pianist Franz Liszt. He was formally introduced to her several months later, and she included him in soirees at her apartment. In their correspondence, which survives, both each acknowledged a sincere attraction for the other, and their letters include an ardent plea from Marie for Liszt to take her completely away from Paris and the life she had been living. What happened next surprises the listener. Count Édouard de Perigot, her lover from years before, reappeared on the scene, and they married in February of 1846. By this time, Marie was ill ill with tuberculosis, and had been for some time. She and Edouard never lived together following this surprisingly abrupt and mysterious marriage. She continued to live on the Boulevard de la Madeleine and kept up a frantic pace of going out almost perhaps to defy her illness. 
Funds dwindling now, she made repeated visits to a pawn shop to sell items that she had been given to support her continued gambling as well as to pay for the ever-increasing visits from her doctor. Marie Duplessis, the great courtesan who had captured Paris, died on February 3rd, 1847, with her husband and one of her former lovers at her side. She had just turned 23 years old. But now it's time to take a break, and when we return, we will continue our story. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream is a total chocolate game changer. We start with unbelievably creamy dark chocolate ice cream. Then we add different chocolate treats, like chocolate cookies, chocolate cake, or chocolate brownies to make four decadent chocolate flavors. Because sometimes the thing that pairs best with chocolate (laughs) is more chocolate. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream. Extraordinary Dairy. Meet the next generation of podcast stars with SiriusXM's Listen Next program, presented by State Farm. As part of their mission to help voices be heard, State Farm teamed up with SiriusXM to uplift diverse and emerging creators. Tune in to Stars and Stars with Isa as host Isa Nakazawa dives into birth charts of her celeb guests. This is just the start of a new wave of podcasting. Visit statefarm.com to find out how we can help prepare for your future. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Every glass of wine tells a story. These stories reveal hidden histories, flavors, and passions. And sometimes they unravel our darkest desires. In Wine Enthusiast's newest podcast, Vinfamous, journalist Ashley Smith dissects the underbelly of the wine world. We hear from people who know what it means when the product of love and care becomes the source of greed, arson, and even murder. Each episode takes listeners into the mysterious and historic world of winemaking and the crimes that have since become infamous. This podcast pairs well with wine lovers, history nerds, and crime junkies alike. So grab a glass of your favorite wine and follow Vinfamous on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And be sure to follow the show so you never miss a scandal. New episodes drop every other Wednesday. And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. And in today's episode, we are looking into the lives of the great courtesans of 19th century Paris. There was little about Cora Pearl that was real. In the heady, glittering years of Francis Segonde here in the 1850s and 1860s, it was almost a virtue not to be who you really were. It was a couple of decades of illusion and fantasy, almost like the world of Venice several centuries before. Society was about showing off precious objects, 
and Cora Pearl became one of Paris's most precious and in some ways mysterious objects. As a courtesan, she commanded the highest prices and counted some of the most important figures from royalty to what was left of the aristocracy among her benefactors, as we'll call them. She rose to the highest height, but fell dramatically as time simply marched on. She had a desirable beauty, of course, but one of her most alluring features was that she was foreign. She was born Emma Elizabeth Crouch in Plymouth, England in December of 1836. Emma, as she was known early on, doctored her birth certificate, shaving off six years, thus forever claiming to be born in 1842. Her childhood was unstable with a father who deserted her mother and Emma's 15 brothers and sisters, and a stepfather with whom it is suspected her relationship was abusive. Moving to London to live with her grandmother, she found work as a milliner's assistant. According to her telling of it, one day returning unaccompanied from church, she was lured to a bar by an older gentleman, plied with drink, only to wake up the next day in bed with him with a shattered reputation, and as she further said, a hatred of men. Never returning to her grandmother's home, she found rooms in central London and fell into the charms of a man who became her lover and who ran a dance hall establishment that employed women. Her new lover, Robert Bignell, encouraged her to fashion a new identity, and thus, Emma Elizabeth Crouch became Cora Pearl. A name that's said to have amused her to think of her lovers as pearls strung one by one on a chain and manipulated in her fingers. Traveling to Paris with Bignall, she breathed the scent of Paris in those early years of Napoleon and Empress Eugenie, full of balls, style, and a society with money to burn. Deciding to remain in Paris and find her way in this world, she impulsively burned her passport, throwing it into a blazing fire. A passport that had again been filled out with false information that claimed she was Bignell's wife. Surviving in a series of rented rooms that brought her closer and closer to the Boulevard des Italiennes, the social center frequented by the fashionable courtesans and their patrons, she began among the lower rungs of Paris's women of flexible virtue. She began an association with a man known as Monsieur Robis, who found her clients of a progressively higher caliber. Cora Pearl's beauty and attraction was an enticing mix— she had a strong, athletic presence, deep auburn hair that could appear red-gold in certain light, and she showed intelligence, wit, and sparkling humor. It was perhaps these three qualities that separated her from much competition. She spoke French, was an accomplished horsewoman, and had a personality that matched the era's love of the unexpected and the outrageous. The men of the Second Empire, who were to become her lovers, loved nothing more than the chase, and the competition among them for an association with the most desirable courtesans. A courtesan, certainly anyone like Cora, knew this full well and used it to establish a financial stability and position. Her first significant lover was Victor Massegna, the soon-to-be Duke of Rivoli and Prince of Essling. Messenia paid for the couture gowns made by Frederick Worth, jewels from the finest jewelers on the Rue de la Paix, and he paid the salaries of her domestic staff, including a high-priced chef 
at her mansion near the Champs-Élysées. William, the Prince of Orange, was another lover, this one heir to the throne of Holland. But perhaps the longest-lasting and most prestigious was Prince Napoleon Jérôme Bonaparte, a cousin of the emperor and nephew of Napoleon I. Reportedly, Prince Napoleon did not have the grace or elegance or style of some of her other lovers, but he had a wit that matched hers. Their association was to go on for a reported nine years. Prince Napoleon was married, of course, and Cora was admitted to the Palais Royal for assignations through a specially designed side door and spent nights in a small room adjoining the family quarters. A courtesan must always be in control by not loosening their emotions, and that was a way that they maintained their power, and it's been quoted, Cora wrote in her memoir, I mastered him. The balance of power was a delicate one between Cora and the prince. Since she was foreign, he held the ability to have her sent out of France should he choose to play that card. Nonetheless, the prince purchased two townhouses for her use in Paris as well as giving her a sizable allowance. As we saw with Marie, one of the places a courtesan was expected to be seen was at the gambling tables, and Cora complied, whether in Paris or traveling to the fashionable resorts in Germany or Monte Carlo. It's been written, she once observed, money slips through one's fingers with a speed you can't imagine. By 1864, she had rented a chateau in the Loire Valley, elegantly appointed, including her famed bathroom in bronze and gold. Cora loved entertaining at the chateau. It was called the Chateau Beau Séjour, the beautiful stay, with extravagant dinner parties, including one in which, for the upcoming course, she challenged her guests to dig in with gusto, quickly slipping away from the table herself. When the course arrived, borne in on a large silver platter hoisted by large men, it was Cora herself who laid a raid on the platter, nude except for some sprigs of parsley sprinkled on her body. The Franco-Prussian War was a defining moment in the French political and social universe in the early years of the 1870s. With the Third Republic now in power, the excesses of the Second Empire fell from favor. Cora's former lovers began to retreat, even Prince Napoleon finally writing to her that he could no longer sustain the responsibilities of their arrangement. But it was scandal that one could say brought Cora Pearl finally down from her position. At the age of 37, Cora had embarked on an arrangement with a man 10 years younger than she, named Alexandre Duval. He pursued her passionately and obsessively, spending most of his own fortune on jewels, horses, and gifts of money for her. Cora is said to have rebuffed him, at which point he arrived at her home armed with a pistol. It has been suggested the intended target was Pearl herself. The gun reportedly went off accidentally, wounding Duval, but leaving Cora unharmed except for the dramatic reporting of the incident by the press. French authorities chose to deport Cora entirely. Her career as one of the most talked about, admired, and emulated social icons of the 1860s was over. She did eventually return to France, but to survive, liquidated what was left of her assets, homes, jewelry, and she returned to a level of wage earning that she had not since her earliest days in Paris. With the money she had, she continued her gambling habit, and at one point outside the casino at Monte Carlo, 
was recognized and described by one of her former acquaintances as now a woman of about 50 years old, and he quoted her as telling him she had no place to go. In 1886, Cora Pearl published her memoirs, the public, anxious for any scandalous details of the life of this famous former courtesan, it seems they were disappointed. Shortly after the publication, Cora Pearl died in Paris on July 8, 1886, and was buried in a cemetery near the northwest city limits of Paris. The grave was only leased for five years, and after which her remains were exhumed and sent to an ossuary. They remain unmarked to this day. We now arrive at the story of our third courtesan, Liane de Pougy, who reigned during the last years of the 19th century, the Great Belle Epoque. Vintage theatrical posters from the time show us Liane's image as the star of the Folie Bergère, the great Parisian cabaret musical, which indeed she was. The Belle Epoque was noted for its grand and glittering popular entertainments in cabarets, dance halls, and theaters, which included not only the Folie Bergère, but also the famed Moulin Rouge. What drew the crowds was the exuberant music and a sense of the excitement of the slightly salacious, the naughty, a world that challenged the stricter morals of proper society. While Cora too had her brief moments on stage, Liane de Pougy was a regular and popular performer. She was called a dancer, but that could have a variety of interpretations. Her story is unique. While she achieved the same levels of fame in her time as Cora and Marie did in theirs, her ending was very different. She found perhaps the most satisfying relationship of her life with a woman. Yet she married a Romanian prince and made a significant change in her life, leaving the fun and the fizz of the dance halls of Pigalle for a convent and life in a religious order. Liane de Pougy, as we have seen with Cora and Marie, was a made-up name. She was born Anne-Marie Chassaigne on July 2nd, 1869, in a small town in France's idyllic Loire Valley. She was educated in a convent. Despite her life as a courtesan and life in the dance halls of Paris, it seems some kernels of her early religious training remained with her even though she rejected them early on. Desperate to leave her parents and the restrictions of her early life, she married a naval officer while still in her teenage years and bore his child. The marriage is reported as being abusive and unstable. While living in Marseille, Anne-Marie took a titled lover, a marquis, but when discovered by her jealous husband, her husband took a revolver and shot Anne-Marie in the leg. It's been written that she delighted in showing her later admirers the remains of the bullet still lodged in her thigh. In an attempt, perhaps to prevent further abuse, she left her husband and son and headed north to Paris. Connecting herself in Paris with the Countess Valtesse de la Bigne, herself a noted courtesan, Anne-Marie was trained in the business and in the practice. She, like others before her, had transformed herself in the process and became Liane de Pougy, her new name taken from one of her lovers. Her face was showcased on posters all around the city, and she had become so popular that she was considered to be a competitor to the great Spanish courtesan Caroline Otero, known as La Belle Otero. Courtesan rivalries existed, and at times, extravagant measures were taken to prove just who should be considered at the top. One famous story recounts that on a particular evening, both Otero and Leanne de Pougy were planning to attend a theater opening. 
Otero made it clear in advance that she planned to be decked in the most exceptional jewels to rival anything Dupuji would wear. On the night of the opening, Otero arrived confidently covered in jewels at her throat, in her ears, at her wrists, and around her waist. It was hard to see any actual fabric of her gown because of the jewels. Liane de Pougie arrived and entered the theater not long afterwards, wearing only a single strand of exquisite pearls. Following behind her was de Pougie's maid, extravagantly dripping in her mistress's jewels. Otero had been forced to compete for extravagance with a maid. Liane had won, and the story was the discussion of all Paris. A crucial requirement of surviving as a courtesan was to be adept at being your own publicity director. Natalie Clifford Barney was a wealthy American writer who had moved to Paris in the 1890s too, and as she told it, to live openly without hiding anything. The French were more tolerant of her same-sex affections than American society of the time, and Barney began to host her legendary salons filled with the avant-garde of writers, performers, and philosophers of the late 19th and early 20th century Paris. One night in 1899, while attending the Folie Bergère, she saw Liane perform and found her deeply attractive. Barney, always known for her own dramatic moments, is reported to have appeared not long after at Dupuji's door, dressed as a page, and announced herself as the page of love. Liane Dupuji and Natalie Barney were lovers for years following, although Liane continued her professional liaison with men. Liane Dupuji also began to write and publish. Her novel, Idil Safique, was a thinly veiled account of her relationship with Barney. De Pougie, like Cora Pearl, wrote her memoirs, the famous Carrier Bleu, the blue notebooks, which she began to keep in 1919. In 1910, at age 40, De Pougie left her stage career and married a titled but impoverished Romanian prince and began a less flamboyant style of life. After nearly 20 years of marriage, the prince chose to leave her for a younger woman, yet reconsidered and returned to the marriage a year later. As the years passed and her life in the Paris haute monde faded, Liane had turned more and more back to her religious upbringing and sensibilities. She reestablished contact with her son from that early disastrous and abusive marriage. He had in the end been raised by his grandparents. Tragically, he had died in a military air accident in 1914, which affected her deeply. She moved with her husband to Switzerland in the 1920s, and following her husband's death, she became a member of the Order of Saint-Dominique with the Sisters of Saint Agnes, an order that provided help to disabled children. Liane de Pougie had changed her identity once again. She was now Sister Anne-Marie. She died in Switzerland in 1950 at 81 years old. There is so much more to say about each of these women as conflicting details and accounts remain in each of their lives. Even when they lived, there was an air of mystery in their being, often created expressly by them themselves. There will always be more to say as well about the experience and the reality of life as a courtesan at various points in Paris of the 19th century. But we're left with the question with which we began, how can we see them now? There is little left of the lives of Cora Pearl or Liane de Pougie, but we do have their photographs and we do have their writing. It could be argued both show only what they wanted us to see, 
But at least, unlike many women of the time, they at least got a chance to have their say. After Marie Duplessis' death in 1847, an auction was held of her belongings, which were widely dispersed. Drawers of invoices, paid and many mostly not paid, were found in Marie's apartment, which tell us the things that brought her pleasure in her quiet moments, and particularly as she became more desperately ill. Biographers tell us she loved macarons and chocolates. She ordered suppers of succulent roast ducks and chicken from the nearby Café Voisin. We know the brand of toilet water that she preferred and how much cold cream she ordered. And we know the shop that made her famous collection of hats. A few pieces known to have been owned by Marie have surfaced in the years since, and today, in looking at an elegant porcelain soup tureen with her initials elegantly scripted on it, we can imagine the dinners lit by candlelight and laughter that she'd held in her dining room. There are several small portraits painted of Marie during her lifetime, including one in which we see her in her salon on the Boulevard de la Madeleine, looking back out at us. We can hope that somehow the contents of the apartment of Marthe de Florian, so miraculously discovered in 2010, can be preserved and even opened so that the public can see the undisturbed private world of a courtesan of the Belle Epoque. If you find yourself wandering along the Boulevard de la Madeleine today, you can stop by the building, it's number 15, in which the last apartment of Marie Duplessis was located and where she died on that January day of 1847. Look up to the second story. The facade remains unchanged since the 1840s. Her windows, from which she watched the world pass by, perhaps in her final illness, are still there. The bedroom on the left, the salon with its three center windows, and the maid's room on the far right. Carriages bringing her beloved flowers and her lovers arrived through the large door on the left. There is something of her left even today, because when we stand right here, we see some of the world as she saw it. I end our story with a quote from the Book of the Courtesans by Susan Griffin, in which she quotes another writer referring to the death of another great courtesan that we met briefly earlier, Caroline Otero. With Otero's departure, there will depart with her the last symbol of an epoch. Superficial, light, and at the same time virtuous and cynical— covetous towards others, yet madly extravagant in its pleasures, full of faults, but not without its splendors. Thank you for joining me for this journey on another episode of The Gilded Gentleman. The Gilded Gentleman is produced by Bowery Boys Media, and this episode was edited and produced by Kieran Gannon. I invite you to become a patron of the show on patreon.com slash thegildedgentleman. Your support directly helps me manage the costs from research materials to studio rentals to be able to continue to produce the show. I am deeply grateful for your support, my patrons. I couldn't do it without you. I'll see you soon. And after all, what's life without a little glint of gold? The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. 
But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.